would guide you down the children's church. Um, give me one minute. Okay, I got to make sure I have my notes because I want to do this right. The last time I introduced a guest preacher, I <laughs> accidentally called him by a different name. <laughs> I ain't doing that this time. Um, but yeah, I, at this time, I want to get ready to uh, present to us uh, Ben Hine, who's the uh, church planning pastor from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, and he's been here since 2021, correct? Uh, not in Muncie, but <laughs> in Indianapolis um, and has been actively uh, working with church planning in the fall of last year. Uh, fun fact is that he is expecting twins. So, and also do in, remind, sorry, remind me your wife's name? Neva. Neva, there we go. He and Neva are both expecting twins. And so, uh, also in July, too. So I, I told him, I was like, you know, we, we're not going to be in the same hospital, but we'll, we'll, be, we'll be trying to take care of our wives together. So <laughs> let, let, us, let us know what y'all need. Um, yeah, so at this moment, I'll bring up Ben. Give him a warm welcome. What? Yeah. Oh, see, there's a, there's a green light and a green switch, so don't confuse the two. That's a lesson. Um, yeah, it's a joy to be with you here this morning. Thanks for uh, inviting me to be here. just wanted to say before I get started that um, you all are pastored by one of my friends, Josh, who has become uh, and is a real ministry inspiration, a ministry hero to me. I don't say those words lightly. Those aren't words that I say just because I'm here as a pastor and I have to flatter your pastor or anything like that. I mean it, I mean it genuinely. And um, I say that because as well that I have become increasingly convicted that whatever is remarkable in others uh, ought to be spoken out loud uh, as a way for our words to give life to others. Like we shouldn't keep that to ourselves. And so, uh, Josh, you are a remarkable leader to me. And um, yeah, I want you to hear that. And I want you all to hear that, especially as he's getting ready to go off on a long rest. Uh, well deserved. So, thank you for having me here this morning. Uh, enough, enough with the sappy stuff. Okay, I want to invite you all. I don't know if you all do this here, but I want to invite you all to stand for the reading of God's word from Luke chapter 4. I believe it will be on the screen. And I'm just going to. Here we go. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Few passages in the Gospels are as important to understanding Jesus' work, his mission, and the nature of his kingdom than this one. No other figure in history, no manifesto or founding document, no political party has ever presented a vision for the world that is as grand and beautiful as the one that Jesus presents to us here. And so for the next several minutes, I'm going to try and magnify just how vast and amazing this vision is for our lives Today And the question that I want us to bring to this text to really wrestle with internally is, are we willing to take Jesus at his word? Completely, truly, and fully. Will we take Jesus at his word and receive his good news and the transforming power that it has for our lives? Or will we shut our hearts to him in the way that his own people did? So as we prepare to get into the text Please join me in prayer as we ask for the Spirit's help in this. Jesus, we look here to your word and we come asking for your Spirit to be poured out upon us. I pray that you would, even this morning, proclaim good news to the poor. That you would set at liberty those who are captive or oppressed. That you would show compassion to those who need your compassion here. And that your jubilee, your favor, would grab a hold of our hearts and wake us up to the grand restorative work that you are doing in this world. This we pray in your name. Amen. If you know where this story is situated in the Gospel of Luke, it's coming on the heels of Jesus coming out of the wilderness. He's just faced his sort of temptation, his encounter with Satan prior to that. Um, A couple chapters earlier, we met John the Baptist, who was out in the wilderness doing crazy John the Baptist things. Uh, He was uh, baptizing people. Jesus came to be baptized by John. The Spirit descends on him like a dove. The Father announces his favor on his son. 
Then we get the genealogy of Jesus, where we see that he stands uh, in the genealogy of, of Adam. He's the second Adam, uh, the second son of God. And then we, uh, he's driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit, where he does battle with Satan uh, by using his word to rebuke and rebuff Satan's temptations. And then it says in verse 14 that he returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. This is now the fourth or fifth time that Luke has told us that Jesus is filled with or anointed with the Spirit. And in each instance so far, he has been trying to tell us something very important about the work that Jesus came to do. So this story then makes this sudden turn from the broad, sort of uh, uh, the wide scope ministry of Jesus, and it becomes very intimate as he returns to his hometown of Nazareth, the place where he grew up where people knew him as Jesus, the son of Joseph, little JJ. And they'd been hearing reports about their boy. He'd been out doing miraculous things and teaching an amazing word, and they wanted him to come back home and share some of this gift with them. Keep in mind, Jesus had no formal rabbinic training. He was a carpenter's son, which was likely some form of itinerant work where he would have been known for traveling the countryside, doing odd manual jobs for his neighbors. And this was going to be a disadvantage for him in his ministry, particularly with the religious establishment. But at least at the beginning, this seems to have served as a kind of hometown advantage. See, whatever training in the Torah that Jesus had would have been alongside people in his hometown in their synagogue. He likely would have grown up around the fireside where he would have heard his elders reciting Torah citations and passing them back and forth as a child. That was his instruction. And so you can understand why the people initially responded with favor to Jesus. They, they sent him off and now they're hearing these reports about him, these grand reports where he is exceeding the expectations that they had for him. So they want him to come home. You can imagine some of the old guys maybe in the back of the synagogue when the announcement time and they're hearing reports about Jesus, the old guys are standing in the back saying, oh yeah, you know, he got that from me first, right? (laughs) So Jesus comes home. He comes to the synagogue service. And we don't know all the particulars of how these services were conducted. There's no evidence, for example, that the scripture readings were on any kind of liturgical calendar. What we do know is that these readers were expected to take the scroll that was handed to them to choose a particular passage from the scroll and then offer some kind of brief sermon or reflection on the text. So the scroll of Isaiah is chosen for Jesus. The passage is not. And he takes the scroll and he stands among his elders, his peers, among women who had probably changed his diapers at some point. And he opens up to two places. He reads from Isaiah chapter 61 and Isaiah chapter 58. And after reading from the scroll, he rolls it back up, he sits down, and the only explanation he offers is this. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus' use of the word liberty and the phrase, the year of the Lord's favor, go back to an old familiar idea in Israel known as the year of Jubilee. And if we want to understand this passage and why Jesus is reading it here, if we want to understand it more fully, it would be worth pausing for just a moment to unpack what this year of Jubilee was, what it was supposed to accomplish. So I'm going to be referencing a few passages, which I think you'll have on the screen here uh, as we get to them in turn. 
Israel, the people of Israel, they were never to forget that they had been released from bondage in Egypt. They'd been released from slavery and brought into life with God in the promised land. This salvation, this liberty was to be the fundamental characteristic that would define their life together as a people. And this is no clearer than in the giving of the Ten Commandments when in Exodus chapter 20, before he gives the law, God says this. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Their entire moral code was situated from this perspective, that they had been released from slavery in Egypt. They had been released out of bondage into God's service, and this new reality was to completely reshape how the people lived. From top to bottom, God's design for humanity is that we would embody His character and His salvation in our life together. See, in God's kingdom, freed people live freely for God and neighbor. Our outward reality of this deliverance conforms to an inner reality, an inner transformation. And this is the fullest way for us to live in the love of our Father and invite others to live into that as well. And so to guide the people towards this end, God God graciously gave his people laws. Laws concerning, for example, generosity to the poor, fair treatment of their employees, compassion for the disabled and, and elderly, integrity in judicial matters, the protection of life, care for the environment, and equitable treatment of ethnic minorities. We moderns love to speak eloquently of human rights, and believe me, I'm a big fan of human rights, but long before we got here, God decreed these things, and he just called them holiness. It's just holiness. You know, my second job out of college, my family were from the D.C. area. My second job out of, out of college was at a, a large contracting company uh, for the federal government where I worked uh, various uh, jobs for the EPA. Um, my team would often work uh, 12-hour days, often six days a week, uh, and that was on top of the odd hours we'd have to wake up and do in the middle of the night. But, you know, we did it because we just thought, like, this is what you do in the D.C. area. This is what everybody's doing. You just run ragged and it doesn't really matter. You do it for the money and to get ahead in your career. Um, many of my coworkers in order to cope with their misery, would openly drink at their desk throughout the day. But the company didn't really care as long as the bottom line was met, right? Because you just exist to help us meet the bottom line, to drive profit. At one point, uh, when we were trying to meet a deadline, after working uh, late hours one night, one of my coworkers uh, fell asleep at the wheel on her drive home and got into a car accident. How do you think the company responded? Like, oh, maybe we should adjust our expectations for people. Maybe we shouldn't work them as much as we're working them. No, they got us hotels next to the, to the, uh, to the buildings so that we didn't have to go home anymore. We could just stay there and work and work and work because that's why we existed, was to drive profit and meet the bottom line. You know, looking back on that period of my life, you know what I can say now that I really would have appreciated then? Maybe like a company policy or some kind of enforceable law, which simply said, you can't do that. You don't get to treat people like animals, like they're a cog in your machine to be exploited and driven to profit and and run ragged. You don't get to do that. People must be viewed and treated with dignity and respect. 
That would have been nice. We didn't have that. We were all miserable. It didn't really matter. Because in D.C., like in so many other places around the world, you exist to be exploited. You exist to be exploited. In so many ways, our world can be characterized by an exploitation of people for selfish ends. But this was never to be so among God's people. As they entered into and experienced his salvation, the way they viewed people, the way they viewed all of creation was to be transformed by their deliverance and their liberty. And so at the heights of all of this legislation in the Old Testament, we find one practice that was especially meant to transform and help the people be conformed into this vision, and that was the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee is given in Leviticus chapter 25, and we have a few verses up here that if you want to go back and read Leviticus 25 and all of what this was supposed to look like, but essentially uh, every, every 50 years there was to be a year of liberty for all of the land and the, its inhabitants. It was to be the year of the Lord's favor. And in each of the verses that we'll be seeing uh, in the rest of the Old Testament this morning, this word liberty simply means release. The year of Jubilee was to be a proclamation of release, particularly of debts. And so those who had been maybe uh, uh, had sold themselves into slavery to pay off their debts were to be released. Those who were, uh, had sold their land to pay off debts were to have their land returned to them and be released from their debts. In other words, every 50 years, there was to be a reset back to the way things were supposed to be. It was supposed to put an end to cycles of injustice among the people so that they would never become like Egypt. And twice in Leviticus chapter 25, we have a similar reminder like God gave to his people in Exodus, which is, I am God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am your God. So we have it in verse 42, and I think it's verse 55 as well. This reminder that I am the one who delivered you, and I expect you to live as a people who have been released. A released people release others. And this produces jubilee. What a good word. Jubilee, great joy among the people. This sounds great, doesn't it? Wouldn't it be great to live in a world like this? Where things like this were practiced regularly? Where cycles of injustice were put to an end by guardrails that our society had to keep it from happening? I mean, surely the people must have been captivated by this vision. Like, they knew what it was like to be enslaved, and so surely they faithfully lived this out, right? Pro proclaiming and practicing release for others who fell into debt. We actually have no record of the year of Jubilee ever being practiced. Not in the Bible, and not in any extra-biblical history. Now, silence on the matter doesn't really prove anything, but scholars are in agreement that even if the year of Jubilee was practiced early on in Israel's history, it fell out of use during Israel's stay in the land. One scholar summarized this. He said, and I quote, he said, this neglect of the year of Jubilee happened not so much because the Jubilee was economically impossible, as, it be, as because it became irrelevant to the scale of societal disruption. This practice became meaningless for families as they fell victim to acids of debt 
slavery, royal intrusion and confiscation, and total dispossession, end quote. Translation, Jubilee was no longer practical. It wasn't practical. Jubilee was a practice which became too disruptive to the status quo. And this is why, throughout the prophets, the ideas and practices of Jubilee become a source of judgment for God's people. There's an example of this in Jeremiah 34. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, every one to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. God's standard for liberty and jubilee, he took it very seriously and pronounced judgment on his people for not staying close to his heart. So here's a question that I think we ought to be asking ourselves at this point, or maybe several questions. Are we guilty of judging what is right, good, true, and beautiful based simply on what is practical? God's design for humanity is characterized by release and jubilee. In what ways do our lives evidence greed and practicality instead? An unwillingness to live in any way that would disrupt the status quo of our own comforts. Maybe it's in small ways, like in our relationships, where we tend to treat people with a quid pro quo mindset. Maybe it's in larger ways, where we think about issues of societal mercy and justice with a scarcity mindset, one that is based on a practicality of limited resources. Like, that sounds good, but it's not practical. Maybe we think that grasping for power in our relationships, in our jobs, in the government, maybe that's more practical than what God would have for us. Friends, I look at God's heart and offering jubilee to his people, and I can't help but think that he doesn't want us to live based on what is practical, but what is possible. What is possible for the God of jubilee? What is possible for his people when they are captured by the desires of his heart? What does it look like for us to dream and to live on what is possible, not on what is practical, not on what we can see, but what is unseen for this world? See, God's design for humanity did not and has not changed. And so glimmers of hope came through the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 61, he spoke of a servant who would declare the coming of an even greater jubilee, one marked not only by a releasing of debts, but by the proclamation of good news to the poor, of ministry to the brokenhearted, of liberty for captives, of an opening of the prisons, of a year of the Lord's favor, the jubilee year. We actually know from other contemporary documents written at this time, such as the Dead Sea Scrolls, that these qualities were attributed by the people to the coming Messiah. It was the people's hope that where they had failed, God's Messiah would come and restore God's comprehensive vision for liberty and justice and freedom 
to the people. That was their hope. That was what they were longing for. So, Jesus stands in the synagogue. He's looking out among the people that he knew intimately. He sees the faces that are weary from long hours in the vineyards. He sees his peers who are stuck in crippling debts. He sees his friends who are consumed by their anger against the Romans. He sees the pain of fathers whose sons had left to pursue a better life elsewhere. He knew of women who were trapped in exploitive relationships. He knew whose children were deathly ill at home. And looking out among the people, he opens up to that place in Isaiah where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, a recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Rolling up the scroll, he hands it back to the attendant. He sits down. Everyone else is still standing, and with all eyes on him, he simply says this. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. Jesus' words sent shockwaves through Nazareth and beyond. And we know that the people knew exactly what Jesus was saying. We can tell by their response that they knew what he was saying. That the greater jubilee you have been waiting for is now here. That I am the Messiah who will accomplish an even greater liberty for his people. Today, all of your hopes and expectations for God to be true to these promises have been fulfilled in your hearing. When Josh texted me a couple weeks ago to ask if I could come uh, preach this weekend, I told him that my sermon would be about like 30 minutes or so. And he said, oh, my sermons are way longer than that. And I thought, good, now I can let my hair down a little bit more. Um, not, not literally, it gets in the way of the microphone, but metaphorically, uh, our lead pastor at Redeemer, he gets like visibly anxious if the sermon goes above like 25 minutes. Like he's sitting in like the third row and just, you know, starts like visibly shaking. Um, so this is good. This is good. Welcome to, welcome to the improv portion of uh, the sermon. Uh, Scott's saxophone has inspired me. Um, so uh, yeah, um, you know, a number of years ago, before, I, before we ever knew that we were going to move to Indianapolis, my first visit to Indianapolis was at a uh, Christian conference there. And uh, it, was a, it was a conference uh, on uh, evangelism, right? It was supposed to encourage us in the work of sharing Jesus with others. I heard a message on this text. And um, I'll spare you all the details. But the whole point of the message was um, only liberals use this text to talk about doing things. This only has spiritual implications for us. Don't come to this text and use it for any kind of societal justice implications. Don't talk about how our lives need to be more just from this text. The progressives do that. 
Jesus here is only concerned about preaching. Well, he's only concerned about good preaching. That's the point. And I thought to myself, for a conference on evangelism, I have never felt so uninspired to tell other people about Jesus. Like, if that's your whole takeaway, is what this text doesn't mean. Um, I'm sure that wasn't the pastor's point. Um, but I was, I was also bothered. I was bothered because uh, I thought to myself, you know, in a room full of mostly middle and upper class Christians, the last thing we need is a bad theological justification not to be more compassionate. So I was upset. Um, I was also upset because I realized that even though I had my strong opinions about how this text ought to be applied and used and what ought to be taught, I realized it didn't transform my life at all. So was I really upset at the preacher or upset at my own hypocrisy? You know? But I was also even, it just keeps going, right? Like how, how bothered I was. If you had talked to me at that time, like for the next three months, I would have inevitably turned every conversation I was in to how upset I was uh, at this. I was also upset because it wasn't faithful. The message wasn't faithful to the Christian tradition. It wasn't faithful. And it turned this passage into a text for the culture war and not into what it actually means to live faithfully as disciples of Jesus. So listen to this quote from Herman Bovink. Herman Bovink, if you don't know that name, uh, I hope you should. He was a th theologian who existed at the turn of the 20th century. And his whole posture was, how do we embody the historic Christian faith in the modern context? That was his posture. And so his, both his posture and his content has amazing ramifications for us today. And this quote is from a, a larger passage where he's talking about, what did Jesus come to do? What did Jesus come to do? I invite you to follow along with me as I read this from the slide. Bavink said this, Jesus was anointed by the Father with the Holy Spirit to bring good tidings to the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and to comfort those who mourn. He makes the blind to see, the lame to walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the gospel is preached to the poor. Christ did not come just to restore the religious, ethical life of man and to leave all the rest of life undisturbed, as if the rest of life had not been corrupted by sin and had no need of restoration. No, the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, and the communion of the Holy Spirit extend even as far as sin has corrupted. Everything that is sinful, guilty, unclean, and full of woe is as such and for that very reason the object of the evangel of grace that is to be preached to every creature, end quote. Friends, what did Jesus come to do? Jesus came to make his kingdom real on this earth. He didn't come to establish some new world elsewhere. He came to make this world new and to restore all that has been corrupted by sin. He came for all of it. He came for all of it to restore all that has been under the curse of sin. That includes us. It includes the world that we live in and the way that we live in the world that Jesus has placed us. He came for all of it. 
came for all of it. And so Jesus, okay, back to the script now. Improv portion's over. Jesus is drawing richly on the language and ideas of the year of Jubilee to make this point. The kingdom has come, and it is an age of Jubilee. We now live in the year of the Lord's favor. Interestingly enough, the word that Jesus uses for liberty in the Gospel of Luke in the, in the New Testament can mean a release from debts. And it is used in that way. Um, and sometimes we use it like when we say the Lord's Prayer, right? Releases of our debts as we release others. That's how Matthew uses that word and kind of has the double use of the language there. But more often than not, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is going to use this word for the idea of the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus is taking this familiar language and he's giving it added value. He's not subtracting from it. He's adding to it. And he's he's showing us, he's declaring to us that his kingdom will be inhabited by those who have been released from the power of sin and brought into a transforming encounter with their God by the power of the Spirit. See, this is the subversive nature of the gospel. It contradicts earthly powers of exploitation and domination by releasing us from the, from the powers and the curse of sin and reconciling us to God, freeing us to live as God has always intended for us, freeing us to live for God and neighbor. So the way of liberty, the way of release, the way of jubilee, that is our new path forward. And how does Jesus do this? Luke has already been telling us in his gospel in the first few chapters, like I said, Every time that we see the Spirit coming on Jesus, Luke is telling us something about who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And so in his baptism, we find that he so identifies with his people in their humanity that he will take on their sin on their behalf, that he will pass through the judgment of baptism in his death. And when he goes out into the wilderness, we're being shown that he will be raised by the power of the Spirit in victory against sin and the devil. And now we find as the Spirit-anointed Messiah, he has the authority to pour out his Spirit on his own, releasing them from captivity to sin and the devil and bringing them safely into the age of Jubilee. Jesus alone can do that. So if you have put your faith in Christ, please hear me this morning. You have been released. You have been released released from the guilt and shame of sin, from the power and the hold that sin has over you, from the corrupting force of sin in your life, you have been released. Jesus sees you all the way down, knows everything about you, and he says to you this morning, you are released. Whatever else may be true about you, this much is especially true. You are a released citizen in the age of Jubilee. Can I just say, by the way, another, we'll call this improv too. Um, Jubilee is a cool word. Like the only time I ever heard Jubilee said uh, is in the 90s X-Men comics. Um, Some of you will know that reference, some of you won't. 
Uh, but like we never say it in any other way, except in reference to a comic book character. We should say jubilee more often, I think. It's a good word. Joy, right? Joyous jubilee. The people of God. Can, can, do other people look at us and see that we are marked by jubilee? Is that a word people would say about us? Are we grumps? People look at us and say, Christians are grumps. Come on, man. That's the main point of the sermon. Don't be a grump. Okay. Our release from sin follows the pattern of God's historic works of salvation for his people. Because in them we see once again that free people are to live freely. And so just as the year of Jubilee set in motion a reversal of the oppression from Egypt, the age of Jubilee sets in motion a reversal of the effects of sin as far as the curse is found. Jesus tells us at least three things about his kingdom, each with their own application for us to consider. First, the Jubilee age will be marked by proclamation both of good news and this Jubilee year of the Lord's favor. The gospel will be, is being proclaimed, and the kingdom of God is expanding as more and more people come under the care of Christ the King. This message will go out to all people, but it will be principally received by the poor. Whoa, Jesus, like, what do you mean by the poor? Like the literal poor? Or, you know, like the spiritually poor, like you'll say later. This is one of these passages we love to come and kind of do this like either-or thing with it, don't we? It's either this or it's that, but it can't, you know, be some other thing. I want to caution each of us this morning against what I'll call an oversteering mentality. You all know what oversteering, like if you get, if it's, you hydroplane on the road and you think you're going off in this way, so you and try to go that way, and the next thing you know, you're going into that ditch. Yeah, don't do that. There's probably a wiser way for us to read Scripture, and whatever we think Jesus is doing, it's probably more than we can think or see. So let's not limit Jesus and what he may be trying to teach us. The gospel can only be received by those who are poor in spirit, who recognize their need to be released from sin, those who want jubilee, and in his ministry, where did it seem most evident that Jesus found the poor in spirit? Among the literal poor and socially marginalized. The Jubilee year was designed with special protection for the poor. So is the age of Jubilee. Here Jesus is saying, do you want to receive my good news? Then follow me and see how it is received among the poor. And so in this proclamation, then, there is an invitation. And I want to share the, this invitation, especially with those of you who are here, and maybe you're still exploring who Jesus is. You're still checking him out. I want to say, I'm really glad you're here. I know this church is really glad that you're here. You know, there are many different and good ways to encounter Jesus. I know this place on a Sunday morning is a good way, a good place to encounter Jesus. But there are two places, I think, where we know we are bound to encounter Jesus for sure. First is in his word, and second is in ministry to the poor. Where are you going to find Jesus? In his word and in ministry to the poor. You know, many modern people, secular people, position themselves on the side of the poor and the oppressed. 
I think that's great. I love that. And so in many ways, the Christian and the non-Christian can can partner together in accomplishing justice for our society. And yet something I think you need to wrestle with is why, more often than not, the poor position themselves on the side of faith, especially the Christian faith. Because they find in the Christian faith a Messiah who empathizes with the poor, who actually sees people who are discarded by everybody else. And that draw, if, you, if you've been in that place and you know that someone sees you and loves you, then yeah, you're going to go. I want you to notice that Jesus' audience was initially impressed with his words. But once they found out what it meant, ministry to their enemies, disruptive compassion, we're out. They try to kill him. See, it's not enough to admire Jesus. It's not enough to think that he had some good words to say. We must take Jesus at his word in full repentance and faith as the Lord of Jubilee who releases us from our sins. And so here's my invitation to you. If you're still checking out who Jesus is, stick around for a while. Get involved with some people here and study Jesus in his word. Check him out. And maybe get involved in some, in some things that the church is doing here in the life of the city. I was talking with Chris right before the service. And he was telling me about, I think he's going to go clean some tiny homes uh, later this week uh, for some people who are transitioning, right? Who, need, who are in transitional care in the city. There are all sorts of ways you can get involved with the marginalized here in Muncie. So, fine. so stick around. See if Jesus won't reveal himself to you through his word and in ministry to the poor and the marginalized. That's the invitation in this proclamation of good news. Second, the age of Jubilee is marked by transforming forgiveness leading to advocacy. Transforming forgiveness leading to advocacy. Quoting Isaiah 61, Jesus said he would proclaim liberty to the captives. And quoting Isaiah 58, 6, it's a releasing of the oppressed. Once again, several words that we get hung up on, like what do you mean by captives? What do you mean by oppressed? That sermon I heard five years ago, this was the whole house of cards moment, was, well, we never really see Jesus setting prisoners free, so he can't be taken literally here, which, of course, you have to wrestle with in the book of Acts where he sets people free from prison, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, You have to wrestle with why, have God's people who have been imprisoned for nearly 2,000 years found such hope in Christ? That's another conversation. What did he mean by captive? We think literal prisoners and we wonder with that, so maybe he just means the spiritual captive. Jesus' audience associated this with captivity from exile, bondage to foreign oppressors. They wanted to be set free from Rome. They were expecting Jesus to continue in the reading from Isaiah where where Isaiah would pronounce a day of vengeance for God. Isaiah will go on in chapter 61 to talk about specifically a judgment and plundering of the foreign nations. That's what the people wanted. That was their expectation. And he flips the entire expectation on its head when he gives the story of the Gentile widow in Naaman the Syrian. Like, that's who I came for. I didn't come for judgment. 
In effect, he says to them, I'm not here to judge your enemies. I'm here to proclaim release to them as well. And, and, and I want you to come. See, that's the, that's the flip. That's where the switch is flipped from admiration to rage. Oh, no. Now we're going to drive you off a cliff, JJ. <laughs> How could these things be? How could Jesus flip the expectation in such a drastic way? It's in this double meaning of the word liberty. It's a release from the debt of sin, which leads to a life of extending release and forgiveness to others. Our newfound jubilee reshapes all of our relationships, from our marriages and our friendships to our colleagues to how we view those who we once thought were our enemies. It reshapes how we view the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed. We stop treating them according to what they deserve or what we think they deserve, but according to the grace and the release that we have experienced. The Lord's jubilee, if it has truly grabbed a hold of our hearts, will even cause us to be advocates of mercy and justice for our enemies with the hope that they too might come to know the Lord. So, proclamation of good news and jubilee, transforming forgiveness, leading to advocacy, and lastly, the age of jubilee is marked by compassion. It's marked by compassion. Jesus pronounced a recovering of sight to the blind, which once again, spiritually blind demonstrated in the physically blind. The entire ministry of Jesus was characterized by generous deeds of compassion. And so in Luke chapter 7, when... The disciples of John came to Jesus to ask for a report. What should we go back to John and say is happening? Jesus would confirm this, and he said in Luke chapter 7, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. These words are a comfort and a challenge to us. They're a comfort because they remind us of the deep abiding compassion of our Lord. Are you brokenhearted this morning? Broken down? Have you been sinned against in egregious ways? Are you hurting? Are you suffering? Are you afflicted? I hope you will hear and see and experience the deep abiding compassion that the Lord has for you this morning. Oh, his heart goes out to you. You are exactly the person that he came to save and show his mercy and love to. And that fact is dripping off of every page of scripture, if you'll see it. If you look for it, it's there everywhere. I hope you'll be encouraged by that. For many of us, these words are a challenge to us this morning because they require that we ask ourselves, can jubilee be seen in my own life? Can the compassion of Christ be seen in my own life in the way that I spend my time, the way I budget my money, the way I treat my family or my coworkers? Is my life marked by the generous compassion of jubilee or by a practicality that doesn't want to disrupt the status quo? This is the age of jubilee. Jesus did not come just to save our souls and leave the rest of life untouched, nor did he come as an exemplar who will fix the world but leave our lives relatively unchanged. 
No, he came for all of it. He is making all things new, and we have the privilege of being invited into it through good news, through transforming forgiveness, through ministry to the poor and the marginalized, through generous compassion. These are the means by which Jesus is bringing about his kingdom age of jubilee in this world. And it's our privilege to be a part of it. I hope you will receive that invitation with jubilee in your hearts this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to be a people who are marked by taking you seriously at your word. All of your word. Even when it means we have to be disrupted, interrupted, pray this morning that you would wake up sleepy Christians. That you would work in each one of our hearts, mine included, which is so prone to viewing other people with practicality and with grumpiness and grudges rather than with grace and jubilee and release. In my own life, I am so quick to think of my own needs and my own wants and I I am not quick to think about others. I am practical rather than thinking about what is possible. I am selfish rather than generous. So I pray this morning that you would make us a people of jubilee. That jubilee would flow from our, from our lips, not in word only, but in the way we encourage others, the way we speak life to others, the way we think about our resources, our time, our energy that we would be a people that people could look in and say, what is going on there? They're happy all the time. They're joyous even when things are hard. They're generous even when they don't have much to give. Jesus, we pray, do that work in our hearts. Not for our sake, not because we're impressive, not because we deserve it, but because you are doing a work of recreation in this world and we want to be a part of it for all of eternity. So Spirit, fill us and make us into this kind of people, we pray. Amen.